What is up, Bitcoiners? It's your boy CK, and this is another episode of the Bitcoin Magazine podcast. This week, I sat down with Bitcoin OG Eric Voorhees. Eric is definitely someone who has a long, long history in the space, and there are definitely listeners of this podcast that may have negative ideas of him. But personally, I respect him, and I think that he has done an enormous amount for this space, even though he may have made some mistakes in the eyes of Bitcoiners. Eric has a very interesting world view. And he has grokked Bitcoin very, very early on, almost 10 years ago. And I think that he is pushing things into the right direction when it comes to decentralization, when it comes to sound money and the foundations of how Bitcoin is going to change the world. This is a really fantastic episode. And I think it's going to be thought provoking for many of you. But until then, let's talk about our sponsor really quick. This is Blockstacks, Stacks 2.0. This is a blockchain that uses is Bitcoin as its native asset, as its native money, and even staking STX tokens in order to support that blockchain through proof of stake, they actually pay you out in sats. You get paid BTC rewards, and there is a native bridge through POX proof of transfer that enables Bitcoin to be used and held trustlessly on the Stacks 2 blockchain. Stacks 2 enables a lot of different capabilities around DeFi, around a lot of other applications that are decentralized. So go over to stacks2.com. That is S T A C K S. To.com to learn more about what they're building over at Blockstacks and all the capabilities that are already available on the Stacks 2 blockchain using Bitcoin as money. All right, that is enough from me, guys. Let's get right into this podcast with Eric Voorhees. Bitcoiners, I am sitting across from Eric Voorhees. Eric is a longtime Bitcoiner and a longtime libertarian and freedom fighter. Eric, thank you so much for joining me. Very happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Eric, I'm sure many of the Bitcoiners listening are very aware of, you know, kind of your history in the space and, you know, a lot of the amazing projects that you have been a part of. But I guess why don't you kind of give a, you know, quick three or four minute intro on, you know, your deep history in Bitcoin? Yeah. So my history in Bitcoin is almost a decade old at this point, which seems pretty epic, pretty epic decade. So, yeah, May of 2011, I learned about it from a Facebook post, dove right in, fell in love with it. Saw it as saw it as a solution to government managed money generally. Have felt that money being the most important good in the economy really needs to be separate from government, you know, for a proper market economy to be functioning. And before Bitcoin, uh, there wasn't really a good solution to that on a like you know digital digital economy. So now we have Bitcoin, and I've basically spent my my life, my passion, my hobby, my career trying to help build this whole ecosystem of decentralized finance ever since then. Awesome. Awesome. And I guess, you know, you obviously had a decent amount of understanding of the world before discovering Bitcoin so that you could even understand how Bitcoin could potentially solve some of these issues. Can you talk a little bit about like how, you know, what kind of primed you to understand and grok Bitcoin 10 years ago? You know, again, 90% of people, you know, could not do that at that point. Yeah. Well, ironically, a lot of it came from Peter Schiff. I, you know, I was living in Dubai at the time or, you know, a couple of years earlier, and I was listening to his podcast on the way to work many days. And through that and through reading, you know, like Rothbard and Hayek and the Austrian economists really came to understand what money is, how it emerges as a good and why certain monies are better than others based on their attributes. So I was, you know, for a long time, 
a believer that gold was a, a great form of money and was far superior to fiat. And those same principles, when I applied them to Bitcoin, made it very obvious that Bitcoin was, was even better than gold. It was certainly newer and more experimental and riskier, but if it didn't fail, it had better attributes than gold did. And so had a decent chance of becoming you know, the world's the world's money. So even today, when I tell people that I think the the end goal here is that uh, the Bitcoin becomes the the primary form of base money on Earth, you know, they'll still kind of laugh and think that's pretty outlandish. But I think it's almost inevitable. So I mean, you've kind of seen Bitcoin evolve from like this plaything, this collectible to something that, you know, just earlier this last week, Elon Musk has kind of like publicly endorsed it. It's been an incredible rise. I guess, can you kind of reflect a little bit on like maybe how like your your idea of Bitcoin has evolved or how, you know, how your convictions have kind of changed uh, over the course of the last 10 years? I mean, the main thing that has evolved is that Bitcoin, the, you know, the core innovation of how to do decentralized money without trust has now been applied to a whole ecosystem, a whole industry of different projects. So these are other blockchains. These are other tokens. These are applications that are decentralized. And really, they are expanding the, the principle that Bitcoin brought, which is to, to take money and finance and remove all the gatekeepers, all the custodians, all the uh, permission givers, and let it be as free and open and, and borderless as email or or mathematics. And so it's really just like been a, a branching phenomenon and a, a complex one. I think one of the major things that you know most of us were quite wrong about early with Bitcoin was our whole hope was that we would we would get adoption if we if we got a lot of people to accept it as a means of payment. Right. So like go to all the merchants, get people comfortable with it, set up merchant solutions so that people could receive payments in Bitcoin over the internet you know, and to espouse the virtues of immutability, you know, relatively low fees and the fact that you couldn't be, have a chargeback. And that never, that never got any traction. The Roger Ver pitch. Well, he was, it was, it was everyone's pitch back then. I mean, everyone was trying to get adoption of Bitcoin to mean people would accept it as a form of money, like as a payment. And um, I think the reason that didn't take off wasn't even for issues of fees, but it was largely because the infrastructure to accept that kind of payment wasn't worth the marginal benefit of receiving a payment in that way. And so that that like just didn't catch on. And I think what's going to happen is essentially at the end of the at the end of this curve, at the end of the adoption, that's when you'll start to see normal retailers accepting crypto. That's kind of like the end result. And we what we were wrong about was thinking that that was how you kickstart it. That's what you focus on in the beginning. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, again, everyone is kind of discovering what Bitcoin is and what it's doing to the world in real time. So, you know, us here now have a lot more information than, you know, early Bitcoin evangelists. So, you know, it's understandable that, you know, kind of like the narrative and the right pitch and the value prop has evolved along with Bitcoin evolving as well. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think, like where Bitcoin works for payments really well is just when they are large payments and especially across borders. It's awesome for that. That is not the market of the retailer who you try to get to integrate a Bitcoin merchant solution so that they'll accept Bitcoin for e-commerce. You know, like it's just a different different type of customer. 
So, you know, also at this point, Bitcoin has been around long enough that this the store of value theme can actually be plausible. In the first couple of years of its existence, you can't argue it's a store of value at all because it, it does not have any history, right? It's it's just too new. Even now, 10 or 12 years in, saying it's a store of value is a, a tall order, but I think it is earning that reputation with time. But the only way that it can be earned is, is with time. So that's a, a more plausible story now than it was back in 2010 or 2011. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, I think it's it's a matter of Lindy, right? So kind of like the longer it's around, the longer people can expect it to be around. But also like its properties are in fact emergent. And maybe right now it's in the phase where it's like a speculative store of value, but it definitely like that is something that, you know, is is graspable for an average person can grasp a lot more now because they've heard it. You know, they've heard Bitcoin so many times yeah. that it's like something that's actually familiar to them. Yeah, it's not this weird niche new thing that people hear about for the first time anymore. You know, like everyone who's connected to the internet has at least heard of Bitcoin at this point, whether they so, heard or not. Apologize for that. So let's let's kind of convert to, you know, obviously you were early days, everyone was in the fiat mindset. And now, you know, 12 years later, Bitcoin is really kind of winning over hearts and minds. There's now a huge cohort of Bitcoiners who, you know, really live in like a Bitcoin oriented world. And, I, you know, I, I see you as one of those people. And you put out a tweet that I thought was really uh, thought provoking earlier today, kind of around the scarcity of time and one's lifespan. And then, you know, how in the current world, you know, we are trading that time for, you know, eff effectively limitless fiat money. Can you talk a little bit about like that paradigm and how do we get more people to shift over to a, you know, scarce money, scarce time paradigm? Yeah, great question. So I think it's probably unarguable that everyone's greatest resource is time, right? We have X number of years and when it's gone, it's gone. And the wealthiest person in the world can't really buy more time, you know, maybe at the margins a little bit. So it's a really important, the, the most important asset that you have. And you're born extremely rich with this asset and you only become poorer with it with time. So, you know, so as you spend your life, as you, as you spend your time, you are you're losing your most important thing. And when you're working, when you have a, you know, a career or a job, you're spending that time in return for something, right? We all need to work. There's a reason we're working. We're working to receive something. And the vast majority of people on earth are working to get their hands on fiat currency. And the tweet was basically just pointing out that you're essentially spending the most important asset that you have in order to get an asset that has no limit on supply that is created without end and is just printed and given to people if they're in the right social circles. And to really think about like how horribly unjust that is and that you shouldn't be spending, you know, whatever, whatever income you make, you shouldn't be spending your time and your talents trying to earn something so worthless as fiat. That's really what it comes down to. And so to the extent that you can earn in Bitcoin itself, great. But if you're still earning in fiat and converting it into Bitcoin, you know, that's essentially as good. And, and just, I think what, what Bitcoin's going to do over the long term, one of the effects it will have on humanity is to help people understand time better, the, the value of time and the value of savings and what, what it means to store your own value and store that over time. That doesn't work when your currency is being debased. So that's going to be like a very profound change in, I think, human consciousness over, over decades as people come to realize how different that is. 
Yeah. And I mean, I think that a lot of the ugly second and third order effects that come from using and being on a fiat standard are materializing today in the psychology and mentality of people living under that standard. You know, we're seeing, you know, crazy stock evaluations nowadays. We're seeing a lot of tendency to kind of trade and gamble and, you know, needing to get out of cash into assets as quickly as possible. Can you kind of talk about the second order effects of fiat and kind of, I guess, where people are misinterpreting these things? Because I feel like most people see these problems very much on a on the surface level and not at like the the base level that, you know, Bitcoiners are are, are diagnosing. Yeah. Maybe one way to explain it is, you know, like whenever you hear professional money people talking about what your portfolio should be, if you ever advocate that a large portion should be in cash, they will rightly question that. And they will say, well, you don't want it in cash. It needs to be earning some kind of yield. And part of why they say that is because the cash is just losing value every year quite consistently. But if your cash, if what you're saving in, if the money you're using is something like Bitcoin, it doesn't have that problem. And it is very reasonable to simply take your savings and and hold it in a sound form of money like Bitcoin. You don't need to invest beyond that into something to get a yield because you're already going to stay ahead of inflation on its own. And what that means is that people can take risks more appropriately because when they when they go to make an investment, they can do it without feeling this this need to get off the zero bound, like this need to get out of negative territory. And so they'll throw money at anything just to get a positive yield. If your base currency is Bitcoin, you don't have to think like that. You can just take a natural neutral state of holding Bitcoin. And if there's a good opportunity, then go for it. But you you won't feel as compelled into it. And you'll be a lot more skeptical of the investments that you do make. Yeah, no, I mean, and and this is something that I feel like people outside of Bitcoin, they just don't quite, you know, connect the dots on yet. You know, it it seems like really a bizarre thought that cash should be the riskless asset. They think that cash should inflate and that we need that to stimulate growth in the economy. And, you know, that kind of a cash is actually good. Can you kind of talk about like some of the toxicities that kind of come out of that? And maybe you can reflect on, you know, the Wall Street bets and, and GameStop debacle that went down last week. Yeah, we're definitely in a bubble equity market. And I have to caveat that by saying that I've been saying that for like a decade, right? So <laughs> I have to acknowledge that the bubble is getting bigger and bigger. And I haven't been right about, you know, when it's going to burst. But I still maintain it's in a bubble. And when this falls apart, there's going to be a disastrous financial situation. And people are going to then start seeing the effects of the stimulus. The whole idea of stimulus when you create it, of course, it makes people feel good. You know, the, the the heroin analogy is a great one. When you inject the heroin, you you will feel great. Like life is good in that moment. And if you start coming down and inject more, then life is great again. It's temporary. You can't you can't do that forever because it starts making the patient very sick. And the US economy, the world economy is the sick patient on the morphine right now. When that has to withdraw, the pain gets felt. And it will become so obvious to people that all that stimulus was really disastrous. Just like it's obvious to the recovering heroin addict that that behavior was was damaging to them. But when you're in the bubble, people don't see that. You don't you don't see the problems until afterward. So I think that's why a lot of people in the Bitcoin world have been called crazy for a long time is because they have 
they've basically like stepped out of that bubble and they've said, look, I understand that, you know, everything is going up right now because, because of the stimulus, but it's not legitimate. It's not sound and it will fall apart and it could get much worse. And so they see it from an outsider's perspective. They see the patient from behind the glass and, you know, to, to the patient who's high, the person outside the glass looks like a, you know, kind of a party pooper, but that's our, that's our lot for a while. No, I mean, I think that the heroin morphine example is, is very, very accurate. So can we talk a little bit more specifically about what went down last week? You know, we saw, you know, essentially a crowdsourced group of people, you know, become interested in a stock because of a very specific, you know, short position opportunity in order to kind of squeeze the shorts. And then we saw, you know, the hedge funds, the powers that be, NASDAQ, uh, SEC, other folks, you know, kind of in the, the realm of the elites really kind of come down extremely hard on that activity. It was very just interesting to watch, you know, from a Bitcoiners perspective. Can you uh, yeah. give your reflections on, you know, what went down and what you took away from that? Yeah. So just to recap, you know, the stock GameStop people on Wall Street Bets, which is a Reddit forum, had started getting interested in squeezing out these hedge funds that had large short positions. And they had large short positions, understandably, because they felt like it was a failing business. And it probably is a failing business. But they had shorted it to such a degree and allegedly had shorted more shares than exist. I, I don't know if that's true or not, but that was the rumor. It caused a bunch of people to just realize like, hey, if we all go long on this, we can cause them all to like have to cover their shorts at a ridiculous price. And you know, we can all make a bunch of money, A, and B, we can you know kind of stick it to Wall Street. And I think it started more of as like kind of a fun project or joke almost and became more and more serious as it started working. And I think it started becoming, and this all happened like within the span of a few days when it, when it climaxed, it started becoming like an actual social movement, like within 48 hours, it was wild. And then, and then add to that, you have all these wall street folks start like turning off the ability to buy shares and they all have their excuses and reasons why they did that. And I, I don't know enough to know if they're telling the truth or not. But at least from an optics perspective, it was devastatingly horrible. I mean, it essentially looked like, okay, a bunch of plebeians just started making money against Wall Street at their expense. And suddenly the whole Wall Street establishment comes out to smack down the plebeians and, and keep them back in their place. And so it just became this incredible David and Goliath story. You know, I think what's underneath the, the specifics of that event are that a lot of people really don't trust the financial establishment. And that's good. Like, I think they, they see that something's wrong there, but a lot of them don't really know what the problem is. They just kind of call it corruption, but they don't really know what that means. And I'm hoping that many of them will be taking a journey of learning through this process and they'll start to understand what the actual problem is, which is the, the currency itself, that, that money itself is centrally planned and controlled in an allegedly open market and that that is a that's antithetical that is unsustainable you can't have a market economy with a centrally planned form of money like one of those things will win out or the other and so i hope a lot of these people end up realizing like there's actually an alternative and people have been building it for 10 years and it's called bitcoin and it is actually a plausible new foundation for finance certainly a lot of the wall street bets types won't end up bitcoiners but some of them will and they the concentric circles of users in, in crypto will just keep growing. 
So I guess let's talk a little bit about, you know, growing the the Bitcoin pie. I've described this in this kind of way as like, so Parker Lewis has a quote that Bitcoin is counterintuitive and then it becomes hyperintuitive. And the way that I kind of see that is that there's just two paradigms. There's the, the, the fiat oriented paradigm, the USD oriented paradigm, and then there's the Bitcoin oriented paradigm. And once you bridge from one to the other, that's that kind of experience of counterintuitive to hyperintuitive. Mm-hmm. Can you kind of talk about what it means to, you know, kind of reorient around Bitcoin? Yeah, well, everyone is, they grow up understanding that money is basically these paper bills and it's just part of the institution of government is money. And that's how everyone thinks unless you're like a hundred years old and money is so important that like you, you spend your life trying to get these, these dollar bills. And then you understand, or you think you understand that most people keep their dollar bills in the bank and that's, that's how banks exist. And that's what banking does. They just hold your dollars for you. And they just grow, they just build this paradigm and their understanding of money in their mind, which is completely, completely off. Like, first of all, the vast majority of dollars are not paper, even. They're just, it's just a digital currency. And they're created out of thin air, destroyed and created by banks. I don't think many people realize that, like, when you go get a mortgage from a bank, the bank doesn't take some of its dollars in its reserves and then give it to you on a loan. They just create the reserves when you get the loan, they create money out of thin air give it to you, you go buy your house, and then you have to work to pay back, you know, quote unquote, real dollars back to the bank. And they're destroyed as they come back to the bank. Almost no one understands that's how a mortgage works. And I think if people really understood that, they'd be like, well, that doesn't seem fair. This, this company with a special license can just create these things out of thin air. If I did that, that would be called counterfeiting. What the hell is going on? And the different paradigm is Bitcoin. It is a, a market-based money, a money that emerges out of the market which has value because participants of the market see the utility in the system. The rules are the same for all people. There are no special licenses you can get to print more Bitcoin or to control it more than other people. It is neutral monetary territory. And that's so different than, than dollars and banks. And it just takes a long time for people to, to realize that discrepancy. And I think it's a painful process for people to realize that what they have chased after their whole life is a big sham. And that cognitive dissonance that kind of comes with that is is difficult to kind of get over. But another reason why it's difficult to get over is just, you know, even today, there's despite kind of untru- like the lack of trust in Wall Street and the existing elites, there's still kind of this glorification and praise for the government and for the state. And, you know, kind of hand in hand with that is, you know, the fact that the state is eternal and it will never die. And that, you know, these dollars are kind of part of its power. You know, part of Bitcoin is chipping away at the state and removing the state from our lives to some degree. And that's something that's difficult for people who aren't libertarians, who aren't in the Bitcoin orientation to one, accept or even want to happen. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people are totally terrified that money would be not handled by by the government. They, the, to them, that just seems like so important. And they generally don't understand how spontaneous order works, which is amazing because all sorts of things that they buy and interact with in a market economy, there's no one centrally planning it. it. It just comes spontaneously through different market actors. And so they're experiencing that all the time, but they're blind to it. And they think for some reason, money needs to be different. And then, yeah, I mean, the whole the whole federal reserve and like the pageantry around their meetings and this like special rate that they set and the glorification of, of Jay Powell and the, the chairman, it, it, it's really like theatrical. And 
so strange. Like, how can you possibly think that, that the world's most advanced and complicated economy should have sort of this like cabal of smart scientists setting the rate for it? Like, it, it's a it's a, a complexity mismatch where where people don't realize like an economy is far too complicated for any any group of people, no matter how smart, to actually plan it. This is the whole lesson of the Soviet Union that like central planning of economies falls apart. It's not because people aren't smart. You know, I'm sure Jay Powell is a total genius, but you can't, you just can't understand enough information to actually plan an economy. So that this is part of, I think, what leads them to the ever increasing stimulus is that like they're just in this, they're in this trap where when they start tapering the stimulus away, markets start crashing, politicians get uppity. All the all the plebeians that don't know any better start getting mad and demanding that they go back to the stimulative effects, and it all gets wrapped up in this academic jargon. And I think you know, in a, in a generation after this has all fallen apart, people will look back at this as like a really ridiculous clown show that society went allowed to persist for way too long. And and just as you know, it's always kind of cliche to compare things to the Holocaust, and I hesitate to do that. But just as we look back on those times and realize, like, how in the world were people so crazy to permit that horrible thing to happen? I think people will look back at fiat money in a, in a similar way. How, how could people possibly think that printing money out of thin air would actually make people wealthier? Because that's essentially the, the argument that's being made. So, yeah, you know, until that happens, all of us that already see that are, are called the crazy ones. And we just have to keep stacking sats and then we can... You can have the last laugh, I guess. Yeah, I think Brady Swenson calls it the the fiat dark ages. And, you know, hopefully we're on the verge of the Bitcoin renaissance. In The Sovereign Individual, they kind of talk about this change is it, it comes not through the political process and, you know, taking shrinking government, but it, it, it actually is a market force that will force the government and governments across the world to become more competitive, to shrink and kind of have less say in our lives. You've been a big proponent of, you know, as a libertarian thinker, you know, we just need to make the government smaller and smaller every year. Can you kind of talk about like in that goal, you know, how you see it kind of coming about and do you see it like kind of similar to the sovereign individual or do you see it differently? Yeah. Well, and Having it shrink and get smaller year after year would be amazing. I just would like to see it shrink one time. You know, like that's the goal. Let's let's see government shrink by 1% once. Like that never even happens. With Bitcoin, essentially what we're doing is we're saying, okay, this whole voting democracy thing is, is a sham, first of all, because the majority of people want free stuff and they don't want to have to pay for it. So any kind of democracy, you're going to get a majority of people over time voting to steal property from various minority groups that they can victimize. That's that's inevitable. I mean, they knew this like back in ancient Greece and Rome. This was like a known social phenomenon. So with Bitcoin, we're not like we're not putting up a referendum and we're not like voting on a new form of money and trying to convince everyone that it's true. We're just using we're just sidestepping it all and we're just using a different form of money ourselves. And because the attributes of that money are superior, they're just objectively superior. Over time, more and more people will discover it and start using it at the margins for various things that they're doing. With time, that means that a larger and larger portion of economic activity will be done with crypto instead of fiat. And as that happens, governments lose the ability to print. They can only print if people have demand for the fiat. And as the demand for fiat falls, because there's an alternative, 
the ability to print falls. And if the ability to print money falls, government has to get smaller. They fund themselves in three ways through taxing, borrowing, and printing. If you remove the ability to print, government has to shrink to some pretty significant degree. It doesn't, doesn't mean government goes away. doesn't mean taxation ends, unfortunately. But it does mean the government will have to shrink. And that will be, I think, the, the greatest gift that, that Bitcoin can give to the world. I love the take in, in the analysis of people using Bitcoin at the margins. You know, I think Bitcoin wins at the margins, right? That's where it, it repeatedly wins. And a lot of Westerners don't see that because they're not living at the margins. But as they get marginalized, Bitcoin is there for them, right? That's what Bitcoin is there for. Yeah. And I, I meant it in a different sense, but that's true, right? So at the margins, meaning those who are marginalized finding its value, that definitely happens. I was referring to, you know, people using it at the margins of their own lives, f- figuring out ways in which it's useful. Like there's a the simple the simple idea that like people will s- just switch. And that's that's not what happens. You don't switch from fiat to Bitcoin all at once. You start realizing that Bitcoin can be useful for some small portion of what you want, and over time that portion grows and grows and grows. So it's your, your use at the margin which grows and that itself grows the entire user base. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point too. It's marginal, you know, where where like in the economy it fits, but also marginal where it meets individuals and users too. Yeah, it's a process. I, I really like that kind of way of thinking about it. So you mentioned, you know, crypto more generally than Bitcoin. A lot of you know Bitcoin believers are very much hardliners and anti anything else. Uh, it's kind of driven by this idea of sound money and the network effects and really kind of pinged on protecting newbies from poor investments. Can you kind of talk about where Bitcoin fits into the greater crypto ecosystem? I know this is something that you kind of have unique views on. Yeah. When the maximalists start talking about protecting the plebeians from bad investments, they just start really sounding a little too much like the SEC for me to be comfortable with that. I get the point because there's a a lot of scams and people definitely need to be very careful. But I think that paternalism is something that was not present in Bitcoin a decade ago and has become present as a way of shrouding the fact that, that the maximalists do not like the existence of any asset other than Bitcoin. One of the things that they can do to look virtuous is to tell everyone that everything else is a scam. And when some of those things are indeed scams, the Bitcoiners will look at that and say, ah, see, I told you. So yeah, I obviously have a big problem with the maximalists. I used to be one. I come from that mindset. I was, I had all those same opinions and broke out of them because I realized that decentralization really is like the main benefit of Bitcoin and that you you are you do not serve decentralization by having one asset, one coin, one way of thinking that is antithetical to decentralization generally. So I hold the opinion that Bitcoin is the best form of money in the entire world right now. It is the best form of money, including all the other crypto assets, hands down. And that other assets, other blockchains have value in other ways for other things. The the good of money is not the only asset, not the only thing that people need in life. And if we're going to rebuild an entirely new decentralized financial system, money is a necessary but not sufficient condition for that. And so when I see things like DeFi, I see all the amazing innovation happening with decentralized technology, much of it largely on Ethereum. I applaud that too. I think that I, that helps Bitcoin. That that helps that helps the the reason that Bitcoin's important, which is to build an alternative financial system based on borderless decentralized protocols. 
so yeah, you know, I'm <laughs> Bitcoin is the vast majority of my portfolio. A lot of people just dismiss my opinions because they say, oh, well, he's just like that shitcoin salesman, which is disheartening <laughs> because my my financial interest is absolutely strongly weighted toward Bitcoin. And they don't seem to have a problem when I speak highly about Bitcoin to other people. They don't say, oh, he's just sh- shilling his Bitcoin bags. So there's definitely a double standard there, but it's fine. I don't, I don't know how we solve that. It's like a matter of tribalism and, and that's kind of part of the human condition. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a nuanced topic personally, as a hardcore Bitcoiner with 95% of my, you know, value held in crypto held in BTC and someone who pretty much only advocates for Bitcoin, I still see the other portions of the crypto ecosystem as actually part of Bitcoin. Like you said that Bitcoin enabled this wave. I, I like, I literally see the whole world is a fractal and all of these things are fractals off of Bitcoin. Therians have actually, you know, kind of like, you know, made fun at me because I've said that Bitcoin is at the center of this new paradigm and that Ethereum is a Bitcoin enabled, you know, thing. And that it, it itself is built on top of Bitcoin. I'm not sure if you agree with that, but it's definitely not an opinion that Ethereum advocates like to hear. But I do really see like, hey, one Maximus, I think a lot of Maximus are wrong because you know, Bitcoin enabled this. Bitcoin enabled permissionlessness. Bitcoin enabled people to do whatever the hell they want. And guess what? You can't tell people to not trade their Bitcoins and you can't tell people to, you know, not use their Bitcoins in this way or whatever. So like all of it is, you know, part of Bitcoin in my mind. Yeah. The the analogy I use is, is like a tree and Satoshi planted this seed, right? With this white paper and out of the ground grew Bitcoin. And as that seed turned into a a little tree and started growing, you started having like a branching phenomena of what that organism was into these other things. So it's, you know, definitely Ethereum technically is not built on top of Bitcoin, but they are so similar and they have so many things in, in, in similarity versus being different. And I know the Maxis would hate me for saying that. And some of the Ethereum guys would hate me for saying that too, but Really, they are like part of the same organism. And the organism is decentralized financial technology. Like that is the organism that has grown out of the ground. And Bitcoin remains like the the trunk, the, the most important part, the most important artery of the entire organism is unquestionably Bitcoin. And the, some of these other branches are extremely important as well. And th- these things do not need to be mutually exclusive. They are They are part of the same process. It would be so depressing to like only be able to appreciate Bitcoin or only Ethereum and, and just blind yourself to like all the other amazing stuff that's happening. Some people are doing that. So I, I don't mean to marginalize you here, but I, I have a feeling like, you know, this conversation might piss off kind of both parties, but who who gets the other kind of asset wrong? Is it Bitcoiners who get Ethereum and DeFi completely wrong? Or is it Ethereans that kind of don't understand the sound money principles of Bitcoin? Because I've definitely... I've experienced both. Like I interact a decent amount with folks from both communities. Yeah. I think this is an important place to not generalize too much. Right. So like Bitcoiners is a large tent full of lots of different types of people. I'm a Bitcoiner, but I'm not a maximalist. And even within the maximalist, you know, there are different types. So, you know, I don't want to say that all Ethereum people do one thing and all Bitcoin people do another, but they've definitely, there's definitely a different type of person on average in the Ethereum community than in Bitcoin. In Bitcoin, the sort of the average Bitcoiner that's been in it for a while comes at it largely from sort of the the Austrian, you know, 
economics, sound money, like very libertarian, verging on anarchist, and wherever you can combine like cryptography and anarchy, that's like where they're most comfortable. Vehemently anti-state, generally. I'm talking mostly about like kind of the early Bitcoiners. The Ethereum folks, you know, even the early ones, there are definitely some of those same people. But in addition, you have people that are pretty, pretty open to like socialist ideas. And people that are not that do not necessarily believe that government is intrinsically bad. Some of them that that are very happy to like vote for, you know, any normal politician. And it's just different. And again, this is part of the this is part of the decentralization is to have these different mindsets and different attributes. Because you know what? It is a lot harder for the government to vilify crypto broadly in the, the crypto user when it's not just the radical anarcho-capitalist Bitcoiner. If that was the only type of person that was in this technology, it's a lot easier to vilify than if it's people with unicorns and rainbows all over all over their clothes, right? That is valuable. And Bitcoiners should see that as valuable. That is part of the camouflage of the organism is to have different mindsets, including statists, including people that don't understand sound money. That's part of the camouflage. So yeah, I, I say... You know, the more the merrier, as long as the, the principle of decentralization is at the core of this technology, then we're good. Okay, so we've gone 40 minutes and we haven't talked about Shapeshift once. I know that Shapeshift has been a passion project as well as something that you've sacrificed an enormous amount to keep alive and continue to iterate on. And you've even you know suffered at the hands of you know government attacks. Can you kind of talk about what Shapeshift is today and some of the amazing new capabilities you guys have been rolling out? Yeah, the short history of Shapeshift, we started as a way to convert one digital asset into another with no custody, no user accounts, no KYC, just a frictionless way to convert one asset into another. This was done sort of in the wake of Mt. Gox and as a way of showing people that there was a better way to do exchange than at, with a centralized custodian. So that got fairly popular and into the 2017 bubble got, got pretty big, significantly profitable for you know a portion of 2017 at least. Into 2018, we had done a lot of further legal analysis and basically came to the conclusion that we were going to be treated as a financial institution which we did not think when we started it. And because of that, to the extent that we permitted the model to continue, we basically risked being thrown in jail. It was a very difficult and dark time in my own life trying to navigate that. There's a lot of things I can't talk about yet, but hopefully will come out someday. Basically, we decided we would implement KYC and run a whole you know, compliance program like a financial institution. I have strong ethical objections to that entire way of being. I do not think people should be spied on just because they're using a form of value. That seems to me antithetical to the presumption of innocence, antithetical to what a free society should be about. And so I was really not okay with that. But the alternative was basically to just shut down Shapeshift. Maybe I should have done that, but we didn't. We we continued through and we lost, you know, the vast majority of our customers. All the wallets that had plugged into us to do coin conversions went with competitors that that weren't as high profile and didn't uh, have the same kind of risk tolerance. So that sucked. The company certainly, you know, suffered for a couple of years. And then, um, you know, over the last year, this decentralized finance stuff has really matured, and decentralized exchanges in particular have gone from, you know, kind of working toys to 
highly scalable systems that are doing the volumes that centralized exchanges are doing. So about six months ago, we said, all right, enough is enough. We are, we're not going to do regulated activity anymore at all. We're done with this. Instead, we are going to just integrate these decentralized protocols into Shapeshift's platform. When users trade, they will be trading through Uniswap, through SushiSwap, through a, do- a half a dozen others. And those protocols are essentially, we are outsourcing the, the compliance requirement to these protocols because we are no longer the intermediary to a trade with a customer. So this was obviously a huge change for us. It is not a step taken without risk. And ultimately, I think it is the path forward because to the extent that you remove intermediaries from financial transactions, the foundation of most Western financial regulations goes away. The foundation of most Western financial regulations comes down to who is the intermediary. And if you can remove yourself from being an intermediary completely, then you are not a regulated entity. So um, that's what we've done. And we are ending our own trading with customers. We've already integrated DEXs into Shapeshift. So now when people want to trade, they can go through DEXs and there's no KYC at all. And we will just continue this principle of integrating decentralized protocols wherever we can and just helping other projects to to do that, because I think that's that's really the way forward. So from Shapeshift's perspective, does this kind of end serving of, of Bitcoin? Because I mean, a lot of these protocols are kind of Ethereum based right now. There's no native Ethereum BTC token that doesn't have some sort of like an intermediary holding the Bitcoin. How, how does this affect uh, Shapeshift and Bitcoin? Very good question. So yeah, all DEXs today basically are on Ethereum and are Ethereum and ERC-20 tokens, which is a quite a lot of assets, but doesn't include the most important one, which is Bitcoin. You know, like eight of the top 10 chains are all non-Ethereum chains. So we are very eager about a project called ThorChain, which is essentially a decentralized exchange similar to Uniswap, but it works across chains. And so as it launches, it will actually be the first way that people can swap from a native unwrapped Bitcoin into a native unwrapped Ethereum or any other asset with no counterparty and with no custodian. I think it's going to be absolutely groundbreaking. And so we are seizing on that opportunity wherever we can. Um, That will hopefully be launching like by the end of this quarter. So pretty soon. And when that happens, Bitcoin and the other chains that have plugged into ThorChain will all be part of this decentralized exchange paradigm that will be accessible within Shapeshift. So yeah, that's we have a plan for Bitcoin. It's coming very soon. That's very exciting. I know, again, like I, I personally, again, I, I find myself to be a little bit more open-minded and educated about the Ethereum ecosystem just because of POV crypto. But I see, you know, kind of the DeFi ecosystem as, you know, Binance 2.0. It's like the mother of all exchanges and it's more of like a Hydra than it is, you know, yeah. a an actual exchange. I don't see it competing with Bitcoin. Bitcoin sound money and all those other things are different things. But if you do want to do like kind of like this trading, I, I definitely see, you know, some value, even though there is, you know, a lot of inefficiencies that come with Ethereum in in kind of doing it that way. And, you know, I'm hopeful that it will serve the Bitcoin ecosystem better. And, you know, hopefully it'll bring the communities together as these ecosystems converge just because. Yeah. Well, and yeah, go for it. Yeah. So, you know, like with ThorChain, what people are going to actually have soon with, with native Bitcoin is a non-custodial way of earning yield on native Bitcoin. Right. So like everyone loves BlockFi, you know, great company. I'm a customer of BlockFi. Not everyone. They've done an awesome job. Well, well, many people do. They, they've definitely built a great company for sure. 
and <laughs> highly in demand, right? A lot Absolutely. of the a lot of the Bitcoiners love that service, but it is a financial institution. It is full KYC compliance. It is custodial, and it is not transparent. You have no idea actually where the capital is going or what's happening behind the scenes. On Thorchain, you're actually going to be able to earn a yield without trusting any other person. The only thing you have to trust is the open source code. And to earn a yield on native Bitcoin without KYC or compliance or any intermediary, I think is a really special thing. It's something that the people in Ethereum have been enjoying you know, for a year or two. But right now, to get yield on your Bitcoin, you have to trust a counterparty. And that, that sucks. But the technology continues to evolve. And this is why it's so important to to appreciate the experimentation happening in, on other chains and in other other ecosystems because it will pay dividends back to the back to the bitcoin holders themselves. Yeah, I mean I, I'm quite confident of that fact that a lot of the value capture is going to continue to happen on the uh you know in 20 the 21 million kind of paradigm. But with that being said, like can we talk a little bit about yield cuz you know I think a lot of bitcoiners yeah. especially the ones listening to this are saying like the whole point of Bitcoin is to definancialize the world. It's to destroy this idea of you need to get yield because your cash is trash. That you know we are living in a world where hard money is just going to baseline increase in in value over time, and that's just going to change how the entire world is is kind of oriented. Like, where do you see kind of like this trustless yield fitting into that? Yeah. So certainly, some number of people, some number of Bitcoiners, do not care about yield at all and do, will not pursue it at all. Right? They just want to have the coins that they hold, and that's fine. There is nothing wrong with that at all. That is the most conservative, least risky way to hold Bitcoin, obviously. But there's also nothing wrong with yield if it's if it's done in a way that is legitimate, transparent, honest, etc. So it all depends on like the specific thing you're doing. And the the person who might want non-custodial yield on Thorchain isn't the person who isn't interested at all in BlockFi. It's maybe the person in BlockFi who's like, man, I hate that I have to KYC all my crypto holdings in BlockFi and that I have no idea what they're doing with that capital. Now, now there's like a way to do this with no intermediary, with no financial spying on you at all. Like that should be appealing for some subset of people for sure. Do you have any kind of like insights into Lightning, Lightning Terminal, Lightning Pool and kind of like the yield capabilities there? Yeah, so I'm hoping that at some point there is a way to do Lightning-based liquidity pools. And I'm not smart enough to figure that out, but I'm sure someone will. And yeah, when that happens, you'll have you know lightning-based assets that you can trade at that speed, and you can earn yield on it all all in a, a non-custodial way. That that'll be awesome. Break it to you. Uh, it already exists. Lightning Labs actually uh, launched the Lightning Terminal as well as Lightning Pools. So there is a small interest that you can make by effectively selling your liquidity to new channels. Mm-hmm. So that does exist. You know, the ad- adding additional tokens and stuff like that is still very much kind of slow coming, but the kind of baseline pooling and interest and in yield is there. Yeah, it's all it's all great. Like the the advance of this industry is just unrelenting. It's it is impossible to keep up with it all and if I was a banker I would I would just probably retire at this point. Like they are so screwed. You go and you see like the innovations that banks try to do and then you look in the crypto world and you see what's actually happening. They are going to be overwhelmed by this stuff over the coming years and there is nothing they can do about it. To me that's a a heartwarming thought and to be part of that is I think very very special. 
So Eric, we're kind of getting to the end of our time here. I want to give you a chance to kind of give the Bitcoiners listening to this show your final word as well as plug where they can learn more about you, Shapeshift, and any other project that you're working on. Yeah. Well, so quick plug on Shapeshift. It's a self-custody crypto platform where you can hold and manage, buy, sell, trade digital assets now without KYC and without custody. We've always been non-custodial. So I guess my last parting word is just that if you get into your head like Bitcoin is the best and nothing else is valuable, that's a very dangerous, blind way to look at the world. A much better way to look at the world is to realize that Bitcoin has kicked off an entire phenomenon of decentralized finance. Bitcoin was the patient zero of decentralized finance. And if you are not aware, at least, if you're not learning about what these other projects are doing, I'm not talking about investing in them, just being aware like how these things work, you're really missing out on a lot of the joy a lot of the importance of what Bitcoin has brought, you are, you are missing because you're, you're blinding yourself to the consequences of what Bitcoin has done. So I would just part with like, you know, just be open-minded, go, go explore and enjoy this whole process while, while it's happening because it's really a beautiful thing. For sure. Well, amen to that. I agree and disagree, but you know, that can be a subject for another conversation. Eric, thank you so much for coming on to Bitcoin Magazine podcast. Looking forward to having you at the Bitcoin 2021 event and to seeing you in person again. Yes, that will be so nice. Thank you so much for having me on. All right, guys, you can find me at CK underscore snarks and you can find the podcast at Bitcoin Magazine everywhere where we post our content. Peace. A quick reminder that all of the content in this episode is for informational and entertainment purposes only. You should not construe the information as legal, tax, investment, financial, or any other advice. Nothing contained in this presentation constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, or offer by BTC Media, the Let's Talk Bitcoin Podcast Network, or any third-party service provider to buy or sell securities or any other financial instruments. Do your own research.